1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the pleasure to welcome back to the podcast the author of Legislative Hardball. Legislative Hardball is published by Cambridge University Press, and the author is Matthew Green. Before I welcome him to the podcast, he is also, in 2019, the author of Choosing the Leader, Leadership Elections in the U.S. House of Representatives – That book is published with uh, Doug Harris and published by Yale University Press. He's on the podcast today to talk about both books. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing
2: great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back on. You were on uh, in the early days of the podcast with your book, Underdog Politics, The Minority Party in the House of Representatives. This new book, uh, Legislative Hardball, uh, is just out and focuses on the Freedom Caucus. Uh, this is a, uh, short focused book, um, but has a lot to say. I wonder if you can start our conversation today, maybe just given a little bit of a recount on, uh, on who you are, and then we can talk about the, the substance of the book, the books really.
2: Sure. Uh, so I'm a professor of politics at Catholic university of America, which is in Washington, DC. Um, and, uh, I, uh, teach and write about American politics, in particular uh, American political institutions, uh, and a, a great deal of my work is about Congress, in particular, uh, including uh, this uh, this new book about the House Freedom Caucus.
1: Yeah, and um, this is this is a uh, an entity that many people have heard of, but uh, but don't know very much about. I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about just the history of the formation of the Freedom Caucus. And maybe, maybe in particular, because because it's interesting to me what its relationship is or has been to the Tea Party Caucus in Congress.
2: Sure. So the House Freedom Caucus is a group of about thirty to forty conservative Republicans in the House of Representatives. It formed in January two thousand fifteen around some shared conservative policy goals. And um, became uh, famous for not just expressing conservative policy goals, but for using fairly aggressive tactics to try to achieve those policy goals. Thus, the title of the book, Hard, uh, Legislative Hardball. Um, they came after the, uh, the Tea Party movement or Tea Party caucus that formed after the 2010 election. So, that was the first midterm after Obama was elected, uh, President Obama was elected. And, you had uh, this Tea Party uh, wave, if you will, of uh, sort of grassroots conservative activists who opposed the Obama White House. Uh, and for a short time, uh, there was a group of Republicans that formed a caucus called the Tea Party Caucus. Um, but that's not the, they're not the same thing as the Freedom Caucus. And that's one of the things that I um, sort of uh, talk about in the book, pushing back against uh, a sort of common myth about them. When people say, oh, the Freedom Caucus, it's the Tea Party movement. Um, It's really not. Um, Some of its members were elected in 2010. uh, Others were not. They didn't really, um, you know, the Tea Party Caucus was a kind of loose group of members that liked the label Tea Party, but the Freedom Caucus members initially, they didn't even reveal their identities. Um, Their goal was really to try to uh, push their leadership in a conservative direction as opposed to at least initially claiming a label that would help them uh, get votes.
1: Now, you have this quote early on in the book, uh, and, and the quote is, you think I'm crazy, and I know you are not. Would you unpack that quotation? Sounds like the, the lyric from a song. Uh, who said it? Uh, why did they say it? And most importantly, what does it suggest about the underlying strategy of the Freedom Caucus?
2: So that quote came from one of the founding members of the Freedom Caucus, a fellow by the name of Mick Mulvaney. Um, who uh, listeners may be f- uh, familiar with uh, as the, the name of the chief of staff of the uh, president, uh, President Trump. We can, we can come back to that later. Uh, but what Mulvaney was, um, one, the reason I use that quote in the book is to uh, explain an important approach that the Freedom Caucus took towards uh, bargaining with leaders of their own party. Initially, it was Speaker John Boehner, um, which was to, uh, to use threats to threaten to vote against bills and procedural rules that would allow bills to come to the House floor. And, and, you know, threats happen all the time in a legislative setting, but the key is that your opponents, for them to work, they have to believe that they'll work. So what that quote, I think, reveals is this, um, uh, this, this important advantage that the Freedom Caucus had, which is to uh, to make folks uh, think that, you know, folks would say, well, the Freedom Caucus, these guys don't know what they're talking about. They're crazy. They're, they're, they're complete lunatics. That can actually help you in an aggressive bargaining environment. If people think that you are not rational, then they may worry that you will do something that will hurt yourself and others. And that can give you more power at the bargaining table. Uh, and so that's why I use that quote, is it illuminates uh, an important advantage the Freedom Caucus had, at least initially when they formed, is their ability to intimidate folks into to taking them seriously.
1: Yeah. So as, as you suggest, this is what you mean by legislative hardball and, and the, the, this game of threats that they, they play. Um, this is powerful rhetoric, um, but it's not exactly clear that, whether this would work. Um, you study cases of, of both political and policy wins for the Freedom Caucus. So what does it mean to win politically versus win in policy terms? And how many wins can we actually credit to the Freedom Caucus based on these definitions?
2: So the, um, the two kinds of wins that I describe in the book, as you said, political versus policy. Um, and policy I define as sh- changing uh, the policy status quo. So getting a bill passed, certainly b- getting a bill enacted into law, or even just getting a bill passed in the House. Would be a kind of uh, policy um, victory uh, political is uh, I, I describe in terms of the agenda, so what is it that you 're getting House members to vote on? what are you forcing them to vote on, or what are you keeping off of the floor so that people can 't vote on them um, now one of the um, one of the things that people do ask is well how effective is the freedom caucus and and this uh, it's not a, it's a it's a harder question than one might think because there's different ways of answering it. If you just look at all the votes that are cast in the House of Representatives, um, they don't uh, the Freedom Caucus doesn't really vote differently than Republicans very often. Uh, they rarely uh, get the get, say, something to pass or fail despite what the majority of their party wants. So in terms of roll call voting, they look very ineffectual. But what I do in the book is I um, look at news accounts and other accounts of the Freedom Caucus in the first two years of their existence, and then the third year uh, in the at the end of the book, and look at the times when they're actually trying to shape outcomes, when they say this matters to us, uh, and we want to to get certain a certain thing. Uh, and I uh, count 18 instances in which they um, tried to influence outcomes, and, and they were at least partially successful in 11 of those, which is a good... Uh, It's a pretty good success rate. But pretty much those were political. Those were forcing something to come to the floor or blocking something from coming to the floor. So if their goal was to actually change uh, federal law to make it more conservative, they weren't very effective at all. But if their goal was to keep things from coming to the floor or forcing members to vote for things on the floor, then they were much more successful.
1: And, and what are these kinds of things? Uh, one of the things that people think about the Freedom Caucus is they don't care about anything; uh, that they're more interested in mucking the system up, uh, scoring points than actually pursuing a clear legislative or policy agenda. Uh, what did you find in terms of the things that they seem to care most about?
2: Well, you know, it's it can be hard when you're studying Congress to know what folks uh, what the true motives of, of folks are, and there is a, a certain presumption that when folks, especially you know, elected elites, particularly in Congress, are saying that they do something because they really care, there is a presumption that they're not really – that's not truthful, that they're doing it for electoral reasons or they're doing it for some other selfish political goal. Uh, I push back on that on the book, and, and I admit that it's hard to know for sure if that's uh, – you know, if, if policy mattered to them. Uh, but I did do interviews with a number of members of the caucus and staff uh, and other folks familiar with the group. Uh, and read accounts of the group. And I and I came away with a sense that they do care uh, a great deal about policy. Um, they also care about re-election, uh, and they do care about having influence, and we can talk more about that. But in terms of their policy goals, um, by and large, they were true believers. And one reason that I, I think that's the case is because what they were doing by forming the Freedom Caucus was in some ways a very risky move. They were effectively challenging the leader of the House, the leader of their party, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who has a lot of power at his disposal, um, and, um, and saying, you know what, your bills are not conservative enough. And some of them did suffer for doing so. Uh, one member, I think it was Mark Meadows, his, he, he later said that, quote, I was fired by my fundraiser um, for pushing against the Speaker. It was just too risky to do something like that. Um, now, what were the kinds of things that they cared about? Well, they care broadly about conservative uh, policy goals, but some of the things that they uh, that were very high on their agenda uh, included immigration. Uh, so taking a hard line on immigration uh, and, uh, and undocumented uh, workers in the United States. Um, they also pushed back considerably on spending in general and tried to camp, sort of clamp down on the, on the rate of growth of federal spending um, Uh, A few other issues, abortion was one which they took a a strong pro-life position. Um, And then they fought quite vigorously for a number of months to end the reauthorization of something called the Export-Import Bank, which provides um, um, guaranteed loans, financial assistance to businesses, U.S. businesses that do business in other countries. And they viewed that as corporate welfare. So those are some of the issues that they took, um, particularly uh, in their first two years, high-profile positions on.
1: Now, you mentioned um, leadership issues. Uh, the second book, I don't know which one came out this year, but uh, you have two books that came out. The second one is written with Doug Harris, and it focuses on House leadership. Uh, leadership, of course, is an important area for intra-party battles. How, how does the Freedom Caucus stack up when it comes to the leadership decisions in the House, and, and how does this fit with the larger study of leadership that is the focus of the book with Doug?
2: So uh, the book with Doug looks at uh, contested races for leadership positions in the House of Representatives. And that's usually an election that's held uh, in the party or for speaker also on the House floor uh, where folks are voting for one or more candidates or in the case of speaker for or against the party's nominee. Um, And in that book, it, it, it digs we go back about five decades and look at individual races and uncover archival research to look at how folks voted. In these races, with the Freedom Caucus, um, you know they didn't have, for example, one member, Raul Labrador, ran for a leadership position. Um, You know they've made attempts to get their members elected into leadership, but what they're probably best known for is their um, threat to remove John Boehner as Speaker of the House. And this is a somewhat unusual situation because speakers are the only positions of leadership in the House uh, which can be removed. Uh, By the house at any time through uh, a motion to vacate the chair. And so the the Freedom Caucus, I would say the height of their perceived influence was when John Boehner stepped down in the fall of 2015 and the Freedom Caucus took credit for having him resign uh, from his position. Um, Now in the book, I push back again on this conventional wisdom that they removed Boehner because there's a few things that are missing from that narrative. One is that Boehner Was already kind of tired of being Speaker, and he was actually thinking of leaving the previous Congress. So he wasn't exactly clinging to power uh, when things were getting difficult with the Freedom Caucus in the fall of 2015. Also, the Freedom Caucus didn't actually have the votes to remove him, because to remove a Speaker, you have to have a majority of the House. And Republicans were not going to vote to remove Boehner, and Democrats had committed to Boehner. They said, We're not going to play this leadership game. You gotta, you, you know, we're not going to muck around with this. We're not going to participate in this election. Um, so what you had really was the Freedom Caucus meeting with Boehner, a select number, and saying, we're really tired of your leadership. You compromise with Democrats too much. You don't listen to us. You punish us. We think it's time for you to go, or we will um, push for a motion to vacate the chair. In fact, one member, Mark Meadows, had already um, proposed that a few months before. But what was key there was that Boehner was not popular with Republicans, and he knew he could win the votes of his fellow party members, but they would then likely get criticized by the grassroots conservatives in their districts. And so Boehner felt, you know what, I, I, I'm just causing trouble for my fellow partisans. It's best if I just step down and let someone else take over, and that's what happened.
1: Yeah, and, and, and so Paul Ryan steps into uh, his place, is Paul Ryan viewed as a success of the Freedom Caucus or, or a loss? Did they back Ryan as the successor to, to Boehner, or, or is, is Paul Ryan uh, a continuation of, of some of their failures that you also document in the book?
2: So, uh, the, what I argue in the book is that when uh, Boehner stepped down, there was a power vacuum at the top of the Republican conference. And um, it was uh, unclear who was going to take over for Boehner. The Freedom Caucus wanted someone who would commit to a series of reforms in the House and would guarantee that the group had more power. But the problem was that it was difficult finding anyone who, frankly, wanted the job of Speaker. So, um, you know, in the Republican Party anyway. So uh eventually Boehner and others convinced Paul Ryan to do it. That was not the Freedom Caucus's decision. That was uh, that was other members who wanted Paul Ryan to do it. They saw him as the only one who had the stature uh, and support in the party to be speaker. And so Paul Ryan met with the Freedom Caucus and uh, the Freedom Caucus you know, made requests and Paul Ryan did not say yes or no to them necessarily. He said, well, I'm open to that and we'll have some discussions, but I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to let you hold my speakership hostage. I'm running for speaker. And so the Freedom Caucus did not officially take a binding caucus position on on uh, supporting um, Paul Ryan, but rather they said that a, I forget the phrasing, substantial majority or large majority uh, are open or would accept his speakership. Because they recognized that um, everyone else in the party wanted someone to be speaker already, and were tired of the Freedom Caucus, and they didn't have a lot of leverage with uh, with Ryan. So I wouldn't call it a failure of the Freedom Caucus because Paul Ryan did do some things. They, he opened up uh, he opened some leadership positions to Freedom Caucus members. He, he he interacted he communicated with them far more than Boehner had, but he wasn't the Freedom Caucus's uh, initial choice of speaker.
1: So if if this is not their first choice as speaker, you mentioned earlier that uh, one of their early leaders, uh, Mick Mulvaney, uh, ends up after the election of Donald Trump, uh, moving over to the White House, runs the Office of Management and Budget, and is now the White House Chief of Staff. What does this say about the success of the Freedom Caucus now, uh, their relative influence with the Trump administration and also the now that they are in the minority uh, in Congress right now,
2: um, where do they stand right now? So, um, one of the things that I that I discuss in the book, I, I just talked about how they were known for making threats and carrying them out to defeat things on the floor, which was what they um, primarily did. But one of the things that they also did early in their um, in the early months uh, uh, of when they you know the early months of existence was they would take advantage, they would build alliances with other powerful Republicans, like committee chairs, for instance, or even party leaders, to try to achieve their political and policy goals. And as I mentioned before, the Export-Import Bank, that was an example of that, where they had Jeb Henserling, who was the Republican chair of the Financial Services Committee, saying, I don't like the Freedom, Co- I don't like- <laughs> he didn't say that, he said, I don't like the Export-Import Bank. And the Freedom Caucus was there with him at a press conference saying, we don't like it either. They had developed this alliance. So if you fast forward to the, um, to the last couple of years with Trump as president, there's been friction with the Freedom Caucus and the president. But by and large, they have followed the same strategy. They have developed close ties with the Trump White House and especially Trump personally. So um, Mark Meadows, who's the current chair of the Freedom Caucus, um, had direct dial to Donald Trump and still does Donald Trump and other folks in the White House and would both call the president and receive calls from the president direct, uh, asking for advice, suggestions, um, um, you know, policy proposal ideas, these kinds of things. And um, by doing so, the Freedom Caucus was able to develop uh, outsized influence. So even now, when they're a minority of a minority party, they're not going to block anything. It's just, you know, they, do, they don't matter in that respect. They still have a lot of influence because of those ties that they have built. And as you mentioned, uh, Mick Mulvaney is a great example of someone who is in the Freedom Caucus, who is now the chief of staff of the president of the United States, very powerful person. Um, and, uh, and that's another avenue of influence for the Freedom Caucus.
1: Yeah, the, the two books uh, that Matt has been talking about, Legislative Hardball, published this year by Cambridge University Press, and Choosing the Leader, Leadership Elections in the United States House of Representatives. Uh, that he uh, wrote with Doug Harrison, published by Yale University Press, also in 2019. Matt, you have had a successful, busy year. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.